You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Well, hello to you all and welcome back to Attaboy Clarence. Hope you all had a very spooky Halloween. We had a spooktacular one over on Patreon. 31 days of Halloween classics all programmed and watched. A spooky edition of Small Tales, my monthly short fiction series. There was even a reveal of some Val Luton hidden treasure. But Noir-vember it is now, and what's ahead for this episode? Well, Noir, of course. I'll be telling you all about a couple of superlative shadowy stories that'll chill your blood and place you right in the heart of darkness. But that's not all. I've also got a genuine Hollywood queen on the show with me today to tell you all about her adventures and misadventures in Tinseltown, as well as how the movies of the Golden Age shaped the actress she became. She'll even tell you about the old Hollywood legends she met on her travels. That's coming up later. We've got Who the Hell is That Hollywood Legend coming. I've got some exciting film festival news for you. So let's get cracking. Let's kick off Noir-vember with a tune from Film Noir's finest, the star of Out of the Past, The Locket, Crossfire, and many more. Here comes Robert Mitchum with My Honey's Lovin' Arms. I love your lovin' arms. They hold a world of charms. A place to nestle when I am lonely. We never have a care Oh, what a happy pair One caress, happiness Seems to bless my little honey I love you more each day When years have passed away You'll find my love belongs to you only Cause when the world seems wrong I know that I belong Right in my baby's loving arms Oh, what a happy pair One caress, happiness Seems to bless my little honey I love you more each day When years have passed away You'll find my love belongs to you only Cause when the world seems wrong I know that I belong Right in my honey's loving arms I love you more each day When years have passed away You'll find my love belongs to you only Cause when the world seems wrong I know that I belong Right in my honey's loving Right in my honey's loving Right in my honey's loving arms Hello, 
amigo. Well, hello. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you Her name is Chiquita Banana You can put them in a salad You can put them in a pie You can also put them in the tailpipe of a car Like in Beverly Hills Cop, but why would you? Any way you want to eat them It's impossible to beat them But bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator. So you should never put bananas into your alligator in the refrigerator. That makes way more sense. To have bananas that are fully ripe, you must be absolutely sure. To take them home and let them ripen. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, okay. Well, you can't get more noiry than The Dark Pages, the magazine dedicated to all that noir. This month's issue sees Karen and her talented mob of writers casting their eye over such subjects as the good girls of noir, fascinating topic to choose. They review all the new editions of noir out there to buy, including a new Kino Blu-ray of 1942's Street of Chance. There's a great profile of Dan Durier, all of the TCM picks of the month are covered, plus there's even a schedule of all the classic movie star birthdays incoming for the rest of the year. The best part is you can get a copy for free. All you have to do is go to allthatnoir.com and it'll be delivered to your inbox within moments. Go grab your new issue of The Dark Pages right now. Well, before we go over to my chat with a genuine Hollywood queen, let's see if you can guess the identity of the Hollywood legend. Have to say, it's a fairly simple one today for anyone with a knowledge of classic movies. This star did feature in a number of noirs, and I'm almost certain that you will recognize the voice almost as quickly as the panel do. But let's see, shall we? Prick up your ears, sharpen your wits, and let's see if you can tell who the hell is that Hollywood legend. In this case, a different form of questioning, one question at a time, in turn moving clockwise, and we'll begin with um, Mr. Mankiewicz. Uh, may I assume from the general ecstasy that you are in the entertainment business? Mm, yes. Miss Franklin. Are you primarily known for your work in pictures? Mm, mm, yes. Oh. Mr. Sir. Are you, uh, have you been a big motion picture star for quite a long time? Yes. Miss Kilgallen? Uh, are you a He-Man hero type? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that who just said? <laughs> Mr. McElwain. Um... Would your first name be Isor? <laughs> Would your first name be Esau? No, Esau. No, 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 no. That makes it one down a night ago, Miss Francis. Are you about to open in a picture in New York? Mm, yes. Mr. Sir. <laughs> Were you ever a member of the 8th Air Force during World War II? <laughs> mm, yes. 
Now <laughs> leave it there. Do you have a clue as to who it might be? Thousands of you out there right now just screaming the answer out loud in public places. <laughs> well, keep listening and I'll give you the answer later on. For now, though, let's go meet a real-life Hollywood queen and hear all about her adventures and misadventures in the land of movies. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show a true queen of Hollywood, stage and screen actor, as well as TV host, Shelley Taylor Morgan, who's very kindly given us some of her time today to talk. Shelley is most famously known for her work on such TV shows as General Hospital, Days of Our Lives. She's also starred in Tales from the Crypt, Archie Bunker's Place, and had a recurring role on crime drama Hunter, where she played the wonderful Sergeant Kitty O'Hearn, a girl that most like to write off as ditzy, but who actually is one of the more savvy, resourceful, and effective detectives in the department. Shelley's also appeared in films such as Scarface and The Sword and the Sorcerer, a film that gave me nightmares for years when I was young. <laughs> Shelley's also acted as the host for many TV shows, including Pure Soap, Coming Attractions, The Daytime Emmy Awards, The Home Show on ABC. I mean, my goodness. True legend, and it's such an honour to have you here. You even transformed yourself into Jean Harlow for a celebrity fundraiser at The Grove, and having seen the pictures... You look more like Jean than Jean did, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I had found this this book at Goodwill. It's a biography of her called Platinum Girl, and it looks delicious, and I haven't had a chance to really look at it, but it's filled with uh, photographs and supposed to dispel a lot of the myths, And but that was fun. Do you look into the golden age of cinema quite a lot, biopics and things? I see old movies all my life. And uh, now with the invent of the internet, I can really delve into things, you know, mm. uh, and that's what I do. Uh, but my parents gave me a love of movies. Uh, I remember as a little girl, my dad telling me about going to see Frankenstein and King Kong and uh, all that fantastical. And Moby Dick, I remember sitting on a couch watching Moby Dick with my father. They must have run it on TV in, in uh, Charleston, West Virginia, where I was born. Uh, so all these fantastical monsters and whatever just uh, filled me up. Mm. And uh, and I've just, oh, I don't know why I'm so drawn to Hollywood. Uh, I, I know I'm not uh, unusual in that, but uh it's one of the few things that I, I retain the information a lot. And so my friends know that, uh, all right, yeah, that Shelly has a connection to that. Yeah, <laughs> Shelly remembers that. So. So. I'm the same as well. And any time people talk about films, they, they instantly grab my arm and drag me over because they'll know that I know a fact about someone or they're trying to think of who starred in a film and i'll know the answer to that mm -hmm. i yep. can't remember my children's birthdays i can't remember phone numbers <laughs> but i remember film trivia i don't know what that's about yes mm. yeah uh and and it, it's just uh it's magic <laughs> uh i, I just rewatched a movie called hugo by Martin yeah. Scorsese. Yeah. Lovely film. And it's about the love of movies, and it's about one of the first special effects artists, uh, George Malaise, and uh, it's a charming movie, and uh, uh, and it had another part to it that just grabs my heart, and that's automatons, uh, uh, robots and whatever. And so uh, uh, I love being put into that world, and that's why I enjoy 
uh, Attaboy Clarence and the secret history of Hollywood because Thank it you. just puts me back in there. Thank you. It's very honored that you listen. Talking of George Melliot, actually, Trip to the Moon must be kind of a selling point for you because you were kind enough to send me a picture that you have. It's the reproduction of the George Lasso's The Moon picture that you have in the kitchen from It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Um, and that's The Man in the Moon as well. And I believe right. that you have kind of a collection on that theme. Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I do. I must have, I don't know, a thousand uh, exhibits or collectibles that have to do with the man in the moon. It has to have a face. It has to have the face. And um, my husband uh, collects antique postcards from uh, the 20th century, early 20th century, late 19th century. And I used to go with him to these conventions uh, where people would collect them. Uh, and uh, I'm standing around and looking at all of the postcards of which you, penny postcards at that time were a penny. That's why they were called penny mm -hmm. postcards. And they were lithographs and photographs. Greg collects actual photographs of women and mainly nudes. He has a master's degree in fine art photography and the woman's figure means a lot to him. So I'd go with him to these and um, I'm standing around going, I want to collect something, but I don't want to collect like teapots or, you know, thimbles. What, what can I collect? I realized that the, the face of the man in the moon really grabbed me. And so I started asking, do you have any postcards with the man in the moon? Well, I don't know. Well, now they've got a whole section that's basically named after me because <laughs> I found hundreds and hundreds and the artwork is phenomenal. So I started collecting The Man in the Moon and, of course, Georges Malaise and Trip to the Moon. Our connection here, which got me Attaboy Clarence, I knew immediately mm. what that was about. That's why I wrote you. I said, I knew what that was from. And in that movie is this little story point about George saying to uh, Mary, I'm going to grab the man in the mood for you. And she made this piece of artwork. Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Can't, can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Dance by the light of the moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Barry. I'll take it. Then what? Well, I went crazy trying to find that rock. Mm. And I was led to Jimmy Hawkins, who played the little the little son of Jimmy Stewart and got in contact with him. And uh, where's the prop? My, my dad was the prop master at RKO, and no one knows where it is. Well, as I said, I've met some wonderful people here, and one is an artist who can copy anything. Mm. And she got a still from the movie and recreated that George Lasso is the moon. Wow. So we have that connection. <laughs> my daughter actually uh, made a copy of it for me for, for a Christmas present one year. And I have that on my wall too. It's, um, it's such a lovely image, isn't it? It's something so old time. It about is. It. It's just a beautiful thing. Now, did she copy something from the movie or did she, yeah. uh, uh, she do the artwork? She, in, she very much did what your friend did. She took a still from the movie and then made a tracing of it and painted it on a canvas. <gasps> for me. So, yeah, I was very... <laughs> I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Talking of It's a Wonderful Life, 
you've not only adored characters and stars from the golden age of Hollywood from afar, you've even had the good fortune to meet a man who many, including myself, regard as the quintessential, I think, Hollywood leading man from that time. Mm -hmm. I'm prepared to be slightly jealous, everyone, but Shelley, who did you meet in the early 70s? Well, Mr. Stewart. (laughs) And it was incredible uh, experience, and I've been talking about it and retelling the story hundreds of times, I'm sure. Uh, My uh, mother uh, volunteered one day for a group called SHARE, and that was, and this is back in the in the early 70s. And this was a group, and I don't know if they still exist, but Hollywood wives who would put on a show uh, to raise money for uh, children. And so my mom had spent the day there volunteering and my dad had take, took me to pick her up. And we go into this big, I don't know where it was held. I don't remember. It was like a convention center, big room. And my dad says, points across the room and he says there's your boyfriend and I go what and I look and there is Jimmy Stewart standing near my mother wow oh I couldn't believe it so I made a beeline to my mother and and Jimmy and her were standing back to back having separate conversations so I went over to my mom and I said mom mom introduce me to Jimmy Stewart <laughs> so she turns around and he's talking to somebody and she's kind of you know shaking his elbow and saying Jimmy Jimmy and he turns around yeah <laughs> and she says I want you to meet my my daughter Shelly Taylor Morgan uh, actually my name then was not Shelly Taylor Morgan <laughs> but that's not important so I said oh and he looks at me and he looks down at me because he's dull and mm. and I said oh Mr. Stewart, I said, I just, I just love you. I loved you and Harvey, but I especially loved you. And it's a wonderful life. And he had this big smile and he bent down and he kissed me on the cheek. And he said, that's my favorite too. Oh. Well, I couldn't believe it. What a story. <laughs> Fred, do you know me? It came you. Huh. from just little bits of thinking. Just, just remember, no man is born to be a failure. Just remember... No man is poor who has friends. It shows values that are really very close to an awful lot of us and are really very basic American values. Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas! So then the moment was over and later on I said to my mom, Mom, what was he like? What did you talk about? What what, what did he say? And she said, Shelly, I never met him before in my life. You said you wanted to be introduced to him. I turned around and said, Jimmy, this is my daughter. So, <laughs> That's so good. Uh, it was it was a, 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 a sweet moment and I'll always remember. And then I've run, I, I was in his company a couple of times in my career um, Beverly Hills, this was in the mid 80s when I was on General Hospital, had a St. Patrick's Day parade down the streets of Beverly Hills. And this was the first one. I don't even know if they had a second one, but this was the first one and it was a big thing. And and there was um, uh, a local gourmet restaurant. And I think the name of it was Jimmy's, but it had nothing to do with Jimmy Stewart. And we were all gathered there before we got on our floats. And there was Jimmy Stewart. And I don't know if you remembered me, but I sent you a, I think I sent you a picture mm. of him and I standing together at that wow. that event. And then I met him again. There was a Jimmy Stewart run uh, for probably cancer or something like that. And I, I met him again there. So that was, <laughs> wow. yeah. You've almost, I mean, you yeah. almost did end up being a boyfriend in the end then. 
<laughs> yes, yes, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, and there's been so many other incidents in my life. That's what I. Uh, that's another reason why I reached out to you. I'm listening to your podcast, and you'll talk about something, or you'll talk about a place, or you'll talk about a character, or you'll talk about an actor, and I go, "Oh, I met them," or "I I know a little tidbit," or whatever. And it just is. It, it's exponential it just goes on and on and on and i bored you with emails no no not at all you. it so, always surprises me when they arrive because um i'm like oh which part of the podcast she's got to now and who she's met and what, what she knows yeah and it turns out that you're kind of like the forrest gump of <laughs> old hollywood <laughs> okay that's, <laughs> you, that's you've a good bumped one. into okay. all these people you know, yeah that is true okay okay <laughs> um, that works them, one of them was anna lee who i you know very smitten with my entire movie watching life she was um she played a wonderful part in bedlam which i I just think is one of luton's best films there was no murder colby was my guest he chose to leave by a window before i could open the door for him and then that that monstrous accident accident master sims is writing a new dictionary but you worked with her on General Hospital, I believe. Yes, and she was very elderly then mm. and uh, in a, a wheelchair, a lot of pain. Mm. Uh, and her son, Byron, would always bring her to the set and was, was nearby. Uh, she was so sweet and so gorgeous. Mm. Because you pointed something out to me that I, I wasn't aware of, but you know, should have been, and that's that Anna Lee's husband was Robert Nathan, who was right. the author of portrait of jenny which was turned into that film with jennifer jones which i've always found to be i don't know what you think it's like a hypnotic experience watching that film there's spoken credits at the beginning and then they have that woven effect that takes you between scenes and there's that color at the end the whole thing's like watching a dream but you come out at the end and you're like yes wow i I don't i've never read the source material have you have you read his book no i have not it's a lovely film and uh Jennifer Jones, I was taking a master acting class through uh, uh, Stella Adler. Mm. And uh, there were two glitterati that were auditing the class. One was the singer Janice Ian, mm. and the other one was uh, Jennifer Jones. Wow. She was sitting at the class. So Let's see if we can yeah, connect this to something else. <laughs> you know everyone. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's crazy. When is tomorrow, Jenny? Does it matter? It's always... This was tomorrow once. Where I come from, nobody knows. And where I'm going, everything goes. I've heard that somewhere. Of course you have. You sang it to me that first day in the park. Did I? I'd forgotten. The wind blows, the sea flows. God knows. I think he knows, Evan. Did you meet Jennifer Jones at all? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't deign to introduce myself to her, but I did to others. Did you? Uh, <laughs> uh, what was it like studying under Stella Adler? It was an interesting experience. Uh, she was revered. Mm. Uh, you know, she taught uh, uh, Marlon Brando, mm. yeah. uh, and uh, she she had this class in, in West Hollywood. And you had to audition to get into the class. And I was stunned that I I got into the class because I didn't start acting until I was 30 uh, and was lucky enough to land on the number one soap opera in the world within four years Mm. of starting my career. I always wondered if I had thought about entering the acting field as a teenager when 
most actors do, uh, what, what could have happened. But, um, uh, so I got into that class and, um, I did a, um, a scene from the children's hour. Right. Lillian and, Hellman. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Just... And, um, and at the end of the scene, she said magnificent, which I'll remember for the rest of my life. Wow. But when she, when she had the first class and the introduction to the, to the, the, the room, uh, and, and it was in a, a small uh, stage area. She comes out in this hot pink pant outfit <laughs> with a big flower on her on her lapel, and her assistant comes in and brings like two dozen roses in her <laughs> arms and lays them at her feet, and everybody's applauding and getting up and giving her a standing ovation. And I'm hanging on every word, but it was the dead of summer and it's hot, and I'm dying from the heat. And we all had some brochure, and I'm sitting there fanning fanning myself, but listening to her. And she looks at me and she goes, you. And I go, yeah. she says, don't do that. Stop that. Oh, okay. That's me. Great start. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I want to say that I have the moment in my life where I can criticize somebody where I think the criticism is valid. I want you to know that it is more interesting for the actor to use his imagination than it is for him to use his experience. Did you get a lot from her class? What do you think of the whole Stanislavski, uh, the method? Yeah, you know, I don't consider myself having a lot of training. And and I don't think I'm particularly gifted as an actor at all. Really? I don't. Mm. Uh, and I think... Uh, I've uh, I've been lucky, although the the non luck, I don't want to say uh, bad luck, but non luck is way outweighs the luck. Hmm. I mean, this is a business of rejection. Yeah, there was a uh, an actor and and uh, impressionist by the name of Rich Little. Uh, used to do a lot of impressions in the '60s and '70s, and he and I were working on a uh, like a candid camera type show and uh, between takes or something we're talking and he says you know what the best part of this this business is and I said no and he says when they call and tell you you got the part mm. and everything after that is downhill <laughs> uh, because you're never tall enough small enough thin enough fat enough blonde enough dark enough it, it's you go why did you hire me mm. uh, so it's you really have to have a strong core to survive in this business and they always take you tell you don't don't take it personally when you're picked over or whatever but after I was in the business actively for 20 years after 20 years, you 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 start to say, you know, maybe it's personal and I, I don't have that. You have to have a fire in the belly yeah. to pursue it. And I lost that fire in the belly. Is that why you stepped uh, away from acting then? And, yeah. You're right. yeah. Okay. And also, again, I was 30 when I started. Mm. And, um, and when I started, the agents would say to me, oh, you should have started five years ago because parts that would go to someone like you who's new and fresh are going to establish actors who wouldn't deign to do a smaller role or, or TV. Yeah. And now they're taking those roles away from you. I've always thought the golden age of, of Hollywood was more remarkable than the, the film industry from the 70s onwards where you had to be young, you had to, and you only had like a five-year shelf life. 
I mean, the people like, right. you know, S.C. Sakal, Eric Bloor, Edward Everett Horton, Lillian Randolph, Dame May Whitty, all of these older people who had fantastic faces and Sidney Greenstreet. You'd never have thought, you know, a beast man in his 60s would be headlining thrillers and stuff. But And Peter right. Lorre, even to look at him, you'd think that's not a leading man. But I mean, it's just right. it's such a shame that it's become more of a product now than this guy's talented and he can obviously do the job, so let's give him a starring role. Right. Yeah. I, have a, I have a photographic uh, compilation of Hollywood photos and the title of it is They Had Faces Then. Mm, yeah. And, and I, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and there were... F- faces that are, are of course there's the incredible beauties like one of my favorites Vivian Lee or Hedy Lamar but they men like Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff mm. and Sidney Greenstreet I mean those were faces and uh, I don't think they have that today unless yeah. they've grown into it they started young and they were the hunks yeah. and now they've grown into uh, character roles did you kind of regret the fact that you didn't start in the in the in the contract system in the contract yeah. players a little bit? Oh, that! Oh, yes, <laughs> to have been born in a different age because I do think, first of all, I, I I didn't pursue acting because I thought you had to be born into it or you had to have connections. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that's why I didn't I, I I didn't pursue it early on in my life. Uh, but when the film industry, Hollywood, was just getting started, it was everything was possible. Mm. And if you did have the gumption to come from Kansas and get on a, a train and plunk yourself in Hollywood and be smart, you had a shot at it. Yeah. You really had a shot at it. And that's what's so amazing about young Hollywood. Mm. It really was the Wild West. Yeah. And you could be a star. You could step it, off a bus and you could be pulling sodas one day and attending a premiere the next night. It's just incredible really. right right i mean uh, errol flynn's career i mean uh, one day he's doing this and the next thing he's starring in movies i mean it's 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 amazing and it's amazing the innate talent that some of these people had that gravitated toward hollywood that uh not everybody has that talent it looks like it's easy mm. and it isn't uh but then some people don't know they have the talent and then they're put on a stage or they're put in front of a camera, people didn't know that they had, sometimes people didn't know they had that talent until a camera was pointed at them. Mm, right. And and then some magic happened. We've all experienced it when you're watching a movie and there's someone on the screen there that you can't take your eyes off them. They have that unexplainable it, whatever it is. And if you're lucky, that's you when you're on screen. <laughs> so you know? true. Obviously you were a movie fan growing up. Uh, and your parents sound like they were huge movie nuts, but were there any people in particular you aspired to, any actors? Or Well, like I told you in the very beginning, I'm very vain. So uh, <laughs> my mother used to tell me when I was a little kid, uh, if you're ever in a, in a car accident, put your hands over your face. <laughs> so so uh, uh, what, th- what that means is I was always drawn to the, the beautiful women, the glamour. That was it. And uh, because she was alive when I was little, Marilyn Monroe, and in fact, I remember when she died, I lived in walking distance. I lived in a in an area in West Los Angeles called Westwood Village, which is very famous Hollywood-wise anyway. And I was in walking to the cemetery or funeral home where she was buried in a crypt, if anyone knows the story of Marilyn Monroe. And I remember, I, it, this was 1963, I believe, that she died. So I was about 12 and a half, and I walked 
like the three or four miles from my home all the way to see her crypt in, in person. So uh, I was always drawn to that kind of glamour in Hollywood. And like I said, I didn't pursue my career until late in life. So I don't believe I was trying to emulate anyone or following in their footsteps. Marilyn's an interesting inspiration, especially for you. When your first movie, I think, was a Marilyn movie, wasn't it? Yes, it, mm. it actually was. Mm. Boy, you've done your homework. Yeah, a Marilyn, <laughs> the untold story. And, and I was, yeah. uh, uh, it was just when I was starting out and uh, Sherry North was mm. in the movie. She may have played Marilyn's mother, I don't remember. But there was this scene that I was in and it was, uh, we were supposed to be in an audition, a bunch of, of young starlets. And uh, there must have been 15 or 20 of us in the, the, in the scene, in the room. And only a, a few of us, a couple of us had uh, any dialogue. And my dialogue was, uh, the, the, the actress near me says, oh, uh, I hope so-and-so, I don't remember the exact dialogue, I hope so-and-so likes me, you know, I, I, I did myself up today, just special. And I said, well, Mr. So-and-so likes blondes. And I was a blonde. What's the matter? They're always late. Got to be at MGM by 10. Why isn't they look like a jade? Hmm. Jade Genesee. Hmm, I don't think you look much like a jade. Is my hair all right? Did you darken it? Do you like it? It's all right, but Mr. Lyon likes blonde. And uh, afterwards, Sherry North came up to me and she says, I was watching you. You're very good. You should you should pursue a career. Wow. So you made me remember that. I haven't thought of that in years. But yeah, <laughs> there were a lot of stars that lived in Westwood Village. Uh, I believe across the street from my parents' building, which I'll tell you about in a second, was Johnny Weissmuller. He wasn't there when I was there, but he, he lived there. Mm -hmm. Louise Brooks, famous uh, silent actress, and she lived in a, in a Neutra building. And Neutra was a very famous architect. And there's a couple of buildings in, in Westwood Village where I live that he designed. And he also designed the house in L.A. Confidential, which if you haven't seen that, oh, movie is that just mm. fantastic. So good. Um, anyway, so my parents bought this building in 56, but... Prior to that, the rumor has it that Ava Gardner lived in our very unit that Greg and I lived into. Mm. And this was where she and or one of the places where she and Frank Sinatra would tryst before they actually got married. Wow. So it was quite exciting to, <laughs> to dig that up and to have that that kind of connection. Incredible. And um, may I ask, have you visited lately? Have you visited that house? Because I believe you had a lot no. of friends in the garden. When yes. Very avid feeder of hummingbirds at the time. Oh, boy. Sugar I water, wasn't it? Yes, sugar water. One mm. point, one part sugar to four parts water. Uh, I fed so many hummingbirds mm. uh, that in the evening when they have their last feeding, I would go through a hundred ounces of nectar in one evening that's how many hummingbirds they were they were just buzzing around your head and oh they're just marvelous i feed them here but there's so much real stuff for them to get that i don't get that many but i do i do still get them they're the they're the jewel of the bird the bird uh, universe <laughs>
aside from knowing Hollywood stars yourself, you, you also have friends who have been very related to old Hollywood. I mean, I think people who are listening to this now are going to be fascinated to know. I mean, your friend Coco, for instance, has a very right. famous aunt. Do you want to tell people uh. who that is? Because I've actually devoted a show to this lady before, and I think she's one yes. of the most remarkable actresses, and one that no one ever seems to reach for when they go, oh, give me a suit top ten. She always right. seems to be off the list. And then you mention her name, and then all of a sudden people go, oh, I love her. Well, of course you do. Because, yes. You know, Yes, uh, it, it happened one night, mm. uh, and so many others. Uh, Claudette Colbert, yes, when the building that I lived in, uh, in Westwood, my next door neighbor, the na- next building over, uh, her name was Coco Claudette, named after Claudette Colbert, Coco Wendling, and her father was a big agent, and in fact, Ann Baxter was one of her, his mm. rather, uh, clients. So Coco introduced me to the world of horses, uh, equestrian, and we used to go to a riding academy. Anyway, Coco every summer would go to her aunt, uh, her aunt's compound in Barbados and stay there all summer long. And I wish at the time I knew more about it, you know? (laughs) You know, flying from Barbados, I kept thinking, oh, if only Clark could be standing there with me. And then this morning, I guess I got carried away on a wave of nostalgia. And I suddenly thought, who knows? Perhaps he is here. (laughs) And Frank, I think we're here, both of us, to honor you and to thank you. To thank you for making magic out of a very simple little story. A story you could actually tell in a small paragraph. I remember Clark and I kept wondering, you know, even though we were enjoying every scene, we thought, what kind of reception can this kind of picture actually get? You see, what I must remind you is that this was shot in 1933, really right in the midst of the Big Depression. The theater was dying, but talking pictures were making money. People needed fantasy. They needed, they needed a dream of splendor and glamour, and Hollywood gave it to them. Jack Warner's another person you have a tangential connection to as well. I mean, Betsy Warner. You went to school with Betsy uh, Warner, right? Right. She was in. I think she might have been a, a half a grade ahead of me. But yeah, her, her father was Jack Warner's son. The one that I think mm. uh, kind of got short shrift yeah. in uh, Jack Warner's life story. There. Mm. What a story. Yeah, it's a crazy story. I remember when I first went to write that, it was not going to be about the Warner Brothers. It was going to be a universe of gangsters almost, you know, because I love the old gangster films. So I, I started writing about James Cagney and I thought, wow, I suppose I should do something about the Warner Brothers for a paragraph. And then looked into the Warner Brothers story and about three three paragraphs down, I was like, no, this is the story to tell. Definitely. My goodness me. And did, did I send you the picture of, of Margaret, Margaret Whiting and he dancing? No, I don't think um, it is. No. Oh, okay. Um, one of my high school uh, compadres uh, was Margaret Whiting's daughter, Debbie. Right. And Margaret Whiting was a, a very popular singer in the in the forties and fifties, mm. and uh, so she sent me a picture of her aunt and Jack Warner dancing, and this was late in his life, but uh, still spry enough to to dance. Mm. Uh, so, it, and and now Debbie kind of curates her mother's book 
of songs and uh, whatever. I mean, Jack Warner is one of these characters now. When people talk about people like Harvey Weinstein, and mm-hmm. you know, at least it didn't used to happen in those days, I think they forget that people like Harry Cohn and Jack Warner existed and that oh, it's been going yeah. on since the beginning. Oh, absolutely. The casting mm. couch. I mean, mm. that is as old as Hollywood is, you mm. know, and many, many an actor sold their soul that way to, mm. to get their foot in the door. I mean, I had mentioned LA Confidential and you yeah. have seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, I love that film. And one of the characters in there is a young actor trying to make his way, and he he falls. He he's one of the earlier victims uh, that they that uh, Kevin Spacey's character finds murdered or whatever. Yeah, and that was how he was trying to get his foot into the door. It's it's sad. Slightly on the bullying side, you've I believe you've you've run up against people like that, perhaps not so much you know as you know tyrannical, but um, maybe the way they treat people. Well, uh, Gloria Monty was, mm. she was a pip. Um, <laughs> she gave me my, my break. Uh, and so I'm forever grateful for her because uh, she launched my career. But she was a real tough cookie. She was very abrupt and very cruel. Mm. And she was very insightful. And she could pick out your weaknesses very well. And then whenever she wanted to blow up at you on the set, and I, I I really didn't experience that, but I saw it, she would go for the jugular and just call you out and call out one of your weaknesses to the mm. point where you're like a snail that somebody dumped salt on, you know, yeah. shriveled up. And it was very, very cruel. And uh, I, I never appreciated that about her. She saved General Hospital and she turned daytime around. Yeah, she's part of the history of the soaps. What can I do for you? Those blueprints in your hand? Yeah, what about them? Avalon Spas, am I right? Yeah. Look, if you're looking to sign up, we don't sign women up here. (laughs) I'm not. Then I'm sorry, I can't help you. Unless you'd like to go to lunch and maybe get to know each other a little bit better. That's something I know I can arrange. Let's be candid, Mr. Holt. You know my name? Yes, and I think you'll recognize mine too. Lorena Sharp, owner-in-chief operating officer of Avalon Spots. No kidding. Would I kid about something like that? Uh, I guess, I guess not. Uh, but why didn't you, uh, when did you get out of town? <laughs> this morning, you were my first stop. Well, I'm, I'm honored. Is, uh, there's some reason you're staring at me, Mr. Holt? I mean, is my makeup on wrong or my shoes on backwards? Or do you always look at everyone like this? Um, no, it's just that, uh... You're not exactly what I expected. <laughs> Nor were you. From our conversations, I'd envisioned you're a typical beer-bellied construction type. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Did I say I was disappointed? Do you look back on your career now and are you happy with your legacy? Are you happy with what you achieved? I mean, for someone, uh, as you say, you didn't start off maybe thinking that was going to be your career path, but you did it anyway and you succeeded. I, I started out as a secretary. I typed 100 words a minute and took shorthand at 140, and I worked at a bank, and I worked at UCLA's Division of Medical Genetics, uh, uh, Neuropsychiatric Institute. So it wasn't until I stopped that that I thought about acting and started to take. I started out with a commercials acting class. Uh, at UCLA's extension, and my acting teacher there said, "You're you're good. You should you should pursue it." And that's kind of what started it all off. But um, it's very hard for me to watch myself. Um, very very critical. And now, years and years, decades later, I'm going, God, what 
I could have done in that scene that I, and everybody does that. Mm. I could have done this and I should have done that. And I didn't do that. So it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of hard to watch. So um, I'm just very grateful for what I was able to do. And it doesn't happen so much anymore, but it's exciting. It was exciting when I'd be out in public and somebody would recognize me. Uh, but here, I've always complimented you on your voice and how wonderful <laughs> it is. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, so in the early days of, of catalog, shopping from catalogs, uh, I was purchasing something on a catalog and I called the 800 number and I, you know, get connected to an operator and I said, I'd like to, I'd like to purchase something from your fall catalog. Mm. And the woman says, I know who you are. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I'm a voice on the phone. I haven't said anything. She said, you're Shelly Taylor Morgan. I said, What? what? Wow. I identified my voice and that and that has happened several times I was at some kind of sporting event and I'm in the rush of crowd as we're leaving the venue with a zillion people all around me and I'm talking to my girlfriend and a woman from behind me says you're Shelly Taylor Morgan so it's so bizarre <laughs> perhaps these people recognized your voice from the marvellous project you made. It's called Audio Cinema. It's a radio show that was dedicated to the music used in films. Now, one of the quotes you used in your show uh, on the Gone with the Wind score was beautifully put, I thought. You said that a movie score is a storyteller in its own right, and without it, that experience in the dark is incomplete. A movie score is a storyteller in its own right. Without it, that experience in the dark is incomplete. There's more to the motion picture experience than the light and shadow before our eyes. Fabulous way of putting things. And as someone who uses music a lot in the way I tell stories, that really resonated with me. What made you want to get that message out into the world about music? What was it particularly that inspired you to make that series? Because I've listened to a few episodes now. I think it's marvellous. And I oh. think it needs to be out there a bit more i wish it could be uh but because i was running such long tracks of uh, soundtracks i don't see how you have the budget to get clearances for that kind of thing but i've always paid attention to the music in movies always and i think i mentioned to you one of the first uh sci-fi or adventure movies that i fell in love with was the seventh voyage of sinbad uh, with special effects by Ray Harryhausen. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I loved that score. And so I've always just pick up the music and 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 I'm so aware of how it's enriching a scene. And uh, so when this uh, nonprofit radio station opened up uh, in my neck of the woods, I came to them and I said, I really love to do this show. Uh, and they said, yeah, go for it. And so I created, I don't know, about 30 episodes or something like that. And it was cut short because I had hundreds of episodes that I could have done on hmm. either a, a movie's point of view or a particular uh, composer's point of view. And so I didn't, I don't have the skills you have with editing. And so I couldn't get involved with that. And like I told you that listening to a lot of them is cringeworthy because I hear, you know, I would have faded in the sound here and brought it up there and tightened this there and taken that breath out there and, and really make it professional. And it, 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 it's, it's lacking in that, but it still tells a story. And uh, thank you for complimenting my writing because that is so much part of storytelling is the music. 
Mm. It's so much. And I notice it in yours, your work so much and how skilled you are at having the music in the background, but still hearing your voice clear because so many times that doesn't work out that well (laughs) with other venues. Uh, So you're so wonderful at being able to do that. And I, and I try to identify all the music that you're doing. Uh, and of course, I don't know all of it, but you'll use modern soundtrack into a story that's a vintage story. And I, I and just to, to, to flavor the story. And it's, it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. Thank you. But uh, if you do include my link to my audio cinema, the music that makes the movies, if people want to listen to that. And, uh, uh, and I, I think I, emailed you uh, one of some of my favorite episodes that I did there, but uh, they're all fun. And uh, I did one on Marilyn uh, uh, and uh, enjoyed doing that because she was, people didn't know uh, what a wonderful singer she was. I want to be loved by you, just you, nobody else but you. I want to be loved by you alone. Firstly, I must thank you for the compliment because I would probably not sleep tonight unless I, you know, oh, I forgot to thank you. So thank you very much. That's extraordinarily sweet of you. Like I say, it's music, true. Thank you. <laughs> the music is, it's just a way of driving an emotion without people realising it. It's mm-hmm. like this, this part's supposed to be fun or this part's supposed to make you feel sad or, or uplifted or something. It's just like a lovely emotional subconscious cue. And I think I learned most of that from old time radio, funnily enough, because oh. when I'm listening to Suspense or the Lux Radio Theatre and I hear Betty Davis saying a line, if if the music's jagged beneath her, then I know I'm supposed to... And if, if it's right. light and beautiful, then you know you're supposed to be swooning. So, so old time radio is was such a great teacher in that respect. But um, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, if it's okay with you, is it all right if I include a few of your episodes, put them on my feed? Because I think people would be absolutely fascinated by what you've done. Because I, I know you say that you're not entirely happy with some the way some of your episodes worked out. I'm a perfectionist as well, so I totally get <laughs> it. And you already explained that when you watch your performances on screen, you, you feel that way too. But as a new listener, I can assure you that they're all wonderful and um, they're, they're beautiful to listen to and very well produced and extraordinarily well written and researched as well, which I, oh, which I, know, is, which I know is you. I'm Shelley Taylor Morgan and audio cinema is my baby. Long before I ever thought I'd have a career in film and television, my parents, especially my dad, introduced me to the awe and wonder of motion pictures. Watching movies with my dad are some of my earliest memories. My dad told me when he was a boy how he sat in the dark picture house, terrified by Frankenstein's monster and gaping in wonder at the fantastical King Kong. He introduced me to worlds inhabited by characters bigger than life. And I remember dad telling me the story of a monstrous white whale. I was watching Moby Dick again, and the special effects and the soundtrack still make my heart race. Thank you very, very much for your time today, Shelley. It's been lovely to meet you, and I know you have a day ahead, and I'm sure you're going to go off and do something fabulous with it. You take care. Go have dinner. You probably haven't even had dinner yet. No, I haven't, but um, you know, this has been a... You're a chef, so I'm sure it's <laughs> going to be fabulous. I'll whip up, you know, Tornados Rossini or something. Yeah, it's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you to your day. Thank you very much, Shelley. Take care of yourself. (laughs) 
and my sincerest thanks to the marvellous Shelley Taylor Morgan there. What a story. What a life. Shelley and I actually talked for much, much longer, and the full, unedited conversation, which contains a whole host of hair-raising encounters and hilarious stories, and more nudity, I have to tell you, is available right now over on Patreon. Just sign up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret. Only takes a moment, and you can listen to Shelley's whole story while you're perusing the classic movie library or listening to the hundreds of hours of bonus content that's available over there. Talking of which, the Attaboy Clarence Film Festival is this month, November 19th and 20th. Two full days of some staggeringly good classic movie programming. Everything from pre-code to the 1970s horror to drama. Silent masterpieces to barnstorming extravaganzas. Saturday, as ever, is public day. Everyone's welcome. And the link will be here on the podcast feed in the coming week or so. Sunday is Patron Day. Open only to my marvellous co-producers and patrons and featuring an even more select group of movies. You can be there for both days if you're signed up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret. It's a fantastic weekend. Make sure you mark the dates and start baking your snacks and hoarding your drinks in readiness. Two whole days. See you there. First up today, though, review-wise, a noir thriller from 1947 starring Edmund O'Brien, Ella Raines, Vincent Price and William Bendix, a story so deliciously naughty that they called it The Web. Anything I can do for you? Any number of things, but unfortunately, I'm here on business. Are I you? want to see Mr. Colby. What did you want to see him about? Well, he's been carrying on with my grandmother. I'd like to find out what his intentions are. If you have any business with Mr. Colby... I have lots of business, but it's all personal. I'm his secretary. His personal secretary. Well, it just goes to show you how far a girl can get if she keeps her stocking seam straight. Uh-huh. Don't get up, thank you. I'll announce myself. Just a minute. You can't go in there. Bob Regan, played by Edmund O'Brien, is a small-time lawyer who's pretty fearless when it comes to standing up to men in power. His latest target is Andrew Colby, played by Vincent Price, whose reckless driving has left his client's fruit stall in ruins. But Colby is instantly taken with Regan's no-nonsense attitude, and he surprises the lawyer by offering him a job, but not just any job. Just now I'm negotiating a rather large loan essential for expanding my operations. And if certain of my prospective backers were to hear that my life had been threatened or I had hired someone to protect me... I see. But on the other hand, if I were to engage a bright young attorney to be constantly at my side... Nobody would think a thing about it. Exactly. That is, nobody except me, because I'd think about it a lot, and I wouldn't like it. Why not? Because I'm a lawyer, not a bodyguard. Regan agrees to protect Colby from the clutches of one Leopold Kroner, a newly released convict who's coming for his vengeance. Years before, Kroner embezzled money from Colby's corporation, and Colby saw to it that he was banged up for a long time. And true to his word, Kroner does indeed find his way into Colby's house, where Regan is busy flirting with Colby's right-hand gal, Noel, played by Ella Raines. We're all hired help together, maybe... I have visions of asking you for a date sometime. With what in mind? Oh, dancing, drinking, catch as catch can. Thanks for warning me. I'll bring along my police whistle. 
Oh, no, no, you have nothing to fear from me. My early years in reform school left a lasting impression. Problem child? Mm, just average. Used to set fire to my kid brother occasionally, but then, who doesn't? Well, that's very encouraging. Ask me nicely and you can have this dance. You've been asked. Regan arrives just in time to shoot Krona and thereby prevent him from murdering Colby. But as the police, led by William Bendix's Lieutenant D'Amico, begin to investigate, they start to find cracks in the story. Just what is the truth behind the Krona tale? Was he really coming for revenge? And if he wasn't, has Regan now committed a cold-blooded murder? Now, one of the things I tend to find myself numbed by when it comes to some film noir is that the plot isn't as well explained as it should be, or it's delivered in exposition that sometimes becomes obscured by all the stylized dialogue. You get two or three characters sat in a car, spouting names and motives to each other while they stare, dead-eyed, at the road ahead, and unless you're really paying attention, it can become easy to get a little bit lost in the plot, and you end up just watching the film for the mood. Well, that's what I really liked about The Web, because it stars Edmund O'Brien and Vincent Price and William Bendix in the hardman roles. You get a slightly more flamboyant set of performances, and yes, the dialogue does have that hard-boiled steaminess to it, but it's evened out by a good deal of ham, too. And so while The Web does have an incredibly intricate, tangled little plot, it's never difficult to follow, and you as the viewer remain completely illuminated as to what's going on. And it is a fantastic story, with a lot of complex problems that don't have easy solutions. In short, it's a perfect noir thriller. O'Brien is all coiled tension as the lawyer being swiftly dragged into a situation he can't control. Vincent Price is his diabolical best, as the plotting tycoon is always eight moves ahead. Ella Raines is wonderful, as his girlfriend-slash-secretary, who slowly comes to realize that the man she loves is a total snake. And every ten minutes, it suddenly swerves direction and throws another curveball your way, and the stakes keep getting higher and higher. I'm dying to discuss it with someone, but I don't know anyone else who's seen it, so do run off and watch The Web from 1947. It's so good. In fact, it's so good that The Web will be showing at November's film festival, so make sure you keep an eye out for it there. On to one of my favorite noir thrillers ever then. Yet another twisted spectacle that does some wild things with flashbacks and time lapses and false narratives and deception. And yet it still remains utterly engaging and morbidly fascinating. I've shown this movie a couple of times at my Sunday Night Film Club on Patreon, and we've had people gasping with shock and falling over themselves to declare it one of the greats of film noir. This really is about as good as it gets. This is The Locket from 1946. Afraid I'll have to introduce myself. I'm Dr. Blair. How do you do? I used to practice psychiatry here in New York. I see. Well, what can I do for you? I saw a picture in the paper this morning of the young woman you intend to marry. Uh, today, I believe. Yes? Yes, that's what I feared. It's uh, most unfortunate. Uh, may I ask if you've known her long? I don't think that's any of your business. Why did you come here? 
What do you want? I hate to be the one to destroy your happiness, but I think when you've heard the facts, you'll be grateful to me. We open at the morning of an upper-class wedding in a Park Avenue apartment. Dr. Harry Blair, played by Brian Ahern, arrives and quietly asks to see the groom-to-be, John Willis, played by Gene Raymond. You see, there's something he has to tell John about the girl he's about to marry. She's Nancy, played by Lorraine Day, and it turns out that she hasn't quite told her fiancé everything she should have about her past. Has Nancy told you that she was married before? Married? <laughs> Are we talking about the same person? Oh, yes, definitely. It's been quite a while since I've seen her, but this is Nancy. She hasn't changed. Well, I'm sure there must be some mistake. If Miss Patton had had a formal marriage, she would have told me. Oh, there can hardly be any mistake. She was my wife for five years. We then go back in time to see what made Nancy the way she is. We first go back to an affair she had with a roughhousing artist, Norman Clyde, played by Robert Mitchum. He's head over heels with her, but the love swiftly evaporates when he discovers that she has a darker side. In fact, not only is she a kleptomaniac, he also becomes convinced that she's a murderer. A man's life is at stake. He's in Sing Sing. He's going to die tomorrow and he's not guilty. I can't prove it, but I know who can. All this has nothing to do with me. Oh, yes, it has. You should see the district attorney. I want you to see him. I can hardly convince the district attorney that evidence is being withheld in a case I know nothing about by someone I've never heard of. Heard of? You married her. In order to explain Nancy's compulsions, we then travel back even further in time to Nancy's childhood, where we discover the sinister secrets that put a crack in Nancy's psyche. Nancy, I need your assistance. The little locket that Karen gave you yesterday has disappeared. I'm not making any charges, mind you. I merely want you to help the servants look for it. And if you should find it, I'll give you something very nice as a reward. I didn't take it, Mrs. Willis. I don't see why you blame me. I'm not blaming you, Nancy. I haven't said I thought anyone took it. Then why do you talk to me like this? Because the thought did occur to me that sometimes little girls have a way of finding things. I'm not a little girl. I'm ten and I know what stealing is. I did not use the word steal. You meant it, though. I meant nothing of the sort. Children take things, to be sure. I don't consider that stealing. And in a brilliant later twist, we also find out exactly how Nancy is planning to avenge her broken childhood all this time later in the modern day. I would keep playing clips for you, but I literally can't without spoiling this masterful labyrinthine plot. And yes, again, it's one of those noirs that requires you to keep up, but it's never overcomplicated, despite being a film in which there are not just flashbacks, but flashbacks within flashbacks. It does a great job of leading you by the hand through what could have been a disaster. Just one detail too many, just one piece of exposition too many, and this house of cards could well have collapsed, leaving you a bit lost. However, the genius of the locket is that it never goes too far. It goes exactly as far as it needs to. And I appreciate that this review might be seen as a little bit frustrating, as I can't really tell you anything about what happens. Let me just say this. The locket is perfectly crafted. It's stunningly acted. It is criminally underseen. It's one of those movies that once you've seen it, it convinces you that A, these older movies that are sometimes passed off as creaky are every bit as diabolical and breathless as anything being made today, and B, that everyone in the world needs to see The Locket as soon as possible. Trust me, this is a total all-timer. 
Plus, it proves that Lorraine Day wasn't just a pretty face, and that Hollywood should have used her in far more interesting ways than as a simple love interest for Dr. Kildare or Cary Grant in Mr. Lucky or Joel McRae in Foreign Correspondent. Her performance as Nancy easily ranks as one of the great villain performances of all time. The ending will blow you away. Run, do not walk to The Locket from 1946. And if you're a patron of mine and you are falling over yourself to try and find a copy, then fear not. It is in my classic movie library. So head over there now. For your radio entertainment this time, a trip to the Lux Radio Theatre for their stunning adaptation of 1948 mystery noir thriller, The Big Clock, which brought back the original stars Ray Milland and Maureen O'Sullivan in a taut tale of a crime reporter who finds that he's being framed for murder by his very own boss. The thing is, the boss doesn't realise that he's framing his reporter. It's brilliant, and it'll make far more sense when you listen. Here we go, then. Ray Milland and Maureen O'Sullivan star in The Big Clock for the Lux Radio Theatre. And I will see you afterwards. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, bring you the Lux Radio Theatre, starring Ray Milland and Maureen O'Sullivan... In The Big Clock. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeling. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Some time ago, I read a galley proof of a new book and was so impressed by its screen possibilities that I phoned an executive at Paramount to recommend its purchase only to learn they had already bought it. That book became Paramount's outstanding example of motion picture suspense, The Big Clock. It's our play tonight, and we're fortunate enough to have two stars from the original cast, Ray Milland and Marino Sullivan, with Ray playing a magazine editor with an uncanny genius for tracking down criminals, and Marino Sullivan as his wife. <clears throat> this past week, Mrs. Keeley and I entertained two friends from Siam, who, I discovered, are enthusiastic users of Lux Toilet Soap. Even in Siam, or Thailand, as it is now called, our product is famous as a beauty care. That was true in the quieter days before the war, when we visited this colorful land. And according to our friends, Lux Toilet Soap is still a favorite. They're on their way home now and are listening tonight from the Pacific as the curtain rises on the big clock, starring Ray Milland as George Stroud and Marie O'Sullivan as Helen. Midtown, New York City. Towering 50 stories above the street is the famous Janeth Building, world headquarters of the incredible business empire known as Janeth Publications. In the lobby of the Janeth building is a tremendous clock. Its size and accuracy attract hundreds of sightseers daily to the Janeth building. The most famous privately owned clock in the world, ladies and gentlemen. Its master mechanism, built at a cost of more than half a million dollars, is set so you can tell the time anywhere on the earth. 
London, Chicago, Honolulu, anywhere. This master mechanism also synchronizes every clock in this building with those in the other Janeth buildings in Kansas City, San Francisco, and the 43 foreign offices of the Janeth organization throughout the globe. Among the dozen different magazines owned by Mr. Janeth is one called Crimeways, George Stroud, editor. Mr. Janeth wanted me to tell you how delighted he is, George. Why, that's the fifth criminal Crimeways magazine is found before the police. The fifth in six months. Yes, sir, George. We're proud of you. Now, uh, what about your plans for next week? That's Cordette's problem, Steve. I'll be in West Virginia. Mr. Janeth wants you to follow through, George, personally. On my vacation? Postponed. Oh, no, nothing's postponed. This is my honeymoon. Honeymoon? With a five-year-old child? He's six years old. And you know why it's my honeymoon? Earl Janeth. Seven years ago, I was assistant editor of the Wheeling West Virginia Clarion. A happy man. Then I happened to run down a guy the police of three states were looking for. I got a $10 raise. So I marry my girl and we go on our honeymoon to her Uncle Fred's cabin at Indian Lake. When we open the door, the phone's ringing. Earl Janeth. Wants me to run Crimeways magazine. Not next week or tomorrow, but tonight. Two hours later, we're on the train for New York. Think you'd have done better to stay in West Virginia? Look, Steve, put yourself in Helen's position. How would you like to be married to a woman who never had a honeymoon? It's an obsession with her. Is Helen home now? I'll call her up. Nothing doing. Look, for seven years, I've worked 26 hours a day for Mr. Janet. Christmases, Fourth of July's, Mother Days. What does Janet think I am? Another one of his clocks full of springs and gears instead of flesh and blood and ulcers? Where is Janet? I'll tell him exactly what I... Oh, come in, Earl. I like your office, darling. Pauline, how did you get in here? Oh, the tycoon's lair. The Berktus Garden of the publishing world. <laughs> it seemed impregnable until I thought of your private elevator. How did you get past the guard? Oh, he's human. You're the only Superman, darling. Earl, what was that I was just listening to? I turned this switch here and I heard voices. One of them was Steve Hagen's. Oh, <laughs> You mean you have microphones planted all over the building? Oh, my darling, how clever of you. And obnoxious. Stop this nonsense. You don't expect me to approve of your being here? I came about my singing lessons. Hagen attended to that yesterday. He gave you a check. I told you $2,000, not one. Or perhaps you don't think my voice is worth cultivating. Your voice is worth exactly what that check reads. That's all, Pauline. I'm leaving. Immediately. I'm six minutes behind my schedule. I have to fly to Washington at 5.10. I'll see you tomorrow night at 10.55. Of course, darling. And I like your office, Earl. (laughs) Just think, to be able to listen to what everybody's talking about. Yes, Earl. Stroud insists he's leaving on his vacation. He's all worked up about it. I'll take charge of that young man myself. And Steve, on the fourth floor in the broom closet, an electric light's been burning for two days. Find the man responsible and dock his pay. Of course. About Stroud, he's meeting his wife at the Van Bar, 12.30. Let him have lunch. I'll get around to him later. Hello? Hmm? I said hello. Oh. Hello? Waiting for someone? Yes, my wife. Mind if I keep you company till she gets here, Mr. Stroud? What makes you think my name is Stroud? Oh, I'm just naturally psychic. Here, give me a hand and I'll tell you what I see. Hmm, 
Mm-hmm. A very interesting poem. There's been a quarrel about a very unpleasant man, a publisher. Hey, wait a minute. I'm scared of you. <laughs> you don't have to be. You see, I... I was listening to you and Mr. Hagen. Only at the time, I was in Earl Janet's office. Your voice came through beautifully, Mr. Stroud. What were you doing in Janet's office? Oh, Earl and I are old friends. He once pointed you out to me. Perhaps I should say we were old friends. You know, what you said this morning made me think that we have a great deal in common. You know the inside, and I know the outside. And together we Hello, could... Oh, 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 Helen, hey, say, you're late. Oh, 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 oh th this is Miss... Uh, Pauline York. Uh, yes, she was telling my fortune. <laughs> oh, don't let me disturb you. Uh... Oh, it's quite all right, Mrs. Stroud. <clears throat> I'm afraid the psychic vibrations are unsympathetic. Goodbye, George. Uh... She is psychic. I'm definitely unsympathetic. Now, darling, let me explain. A, she just this minute spotted me. B, I wouldn't make a pass at her on a bet. And C... And C, you knew I'd be along any minute. Yes, so let's sit down and get a table. Did you pick up the train tickets? Yes. A drawing room on the 722 from Penn Station. Uh, and Tommy's at Grandma's. Oh, George, I still can't believe we're going. Hey, hey, now, that's no mood for a honeymoon. <laughs> oh, I know. But sometimes I think you marry that magazine instead of me. Well, look, we've got a certificate that says different. Yes, but we don't live that way. We're like strangers sharing an apartment. Either you come dragging home at night too tired even to talk to me, or else you're off having fun with some dancer in San Francisco. Now, I told you that was for an article. Oh, I could write an article, too. How to look at a wall in six easy lessons. Oh, George, we should never have left West Virginia. Why, we'd be a family now, an honest-to-goodness full-time family. Darling, George, if you'd do you... just listen to me, I... Well, I have listened for seven years. George, do you realize our son doesn't know you? Why, a boy needs a father. Look, darling, hmm? look, we ha we're going to have lunch. After lunch, I'm going back to the office. And at five o'clock, I'm leaving the office, and neither snow nor heat nor rain nor gloom of night is going to keep me off that train for Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh, I'm crazy. I'm crazy, I know it. But I believe you mean it. Oh, darling, darling, please be on that train. And, George, I just thought I'd drop into your office and see you. Yes, George, uh, I'm curious. You, uh... You are, Mr. Janet? Yes, yes. This job you've been doing of finding people a step ahead of the police all the time. <laughs> What's the method, George? Well, we, uh, we call it the system of the irrelevant clue. Uh -huh. Now, the police only look for the relevant clues. They haven't much time for anything else, not when the case just breaks, you see. But we, uh, we assemble all the clues. We recreate the man, his character, his habits, his emotions. And when you have that pattern straightened out, it's easy enough to figure where to look for your missing man. Well, that's interesting. Most interesting. Now, this Fleming case, do you know how we found Fleming? Seashells. Seashells? Yes. Fleming was a fanatical collector of Paleozoic bivalves. I checked his index and found he had every variety except one. You see? It's up there on the blackboard. Now, the only specimen of that seashell in the United States is in a museum in Salt Lake City. So I assigned the man to watch it constantly. Fleming was going to steal it? Well, it, it wasn't for sale. Now, wouldn't you steal something if you wanted it badly enough? <laughs> yes, I might, I might. Now, George, you've done a fine job of work for me. Well, I think the real credit belongs to the crime waste staff, Mr. Janeth. Yeah, that's another thing I like about you, George. You're modest. Uh, 
George, we worked together now for six years, haven't we? Uh, seven. Shoulder to shoulder, comrades in arms, nothing, uh, neither of us letting the other down. Now, uh, George, this Fleming story, properly followed up, should boost circulation 10%. Oh, 15. Ah, that's the spirit. So I'm giving you carte blanche for the next three issues. The the next three issues? Yes, carte blanche. And then a wonderful vacation, all expenses paid. Uh, South America. West Virginia, Mr. Janeth, and tonight. Now, George, listen to me. No, you really had me going there for a minute, Mr. Janeth. You're a great performer. Then I'll dispense with the performance, George. Either you you see this thing through with us, or you're fired. That's okay with me. I'm fired. And I'll have you blacklisted all over the country. You'll never work on a magazine again. It's still okay. I'll give you exactly four minutes to think it over, George. Let Hagen know what you decide. I don't need four minutes or four seconds. Yes? Call for you, Mr. Stroud. A woman. Well, what woman? She wouldn't say. She keeps talking about reading your palm. Oh. Oh, put her on. Hello. Hello, George. And how are you? You want to make a bet? Five to one, your crystal ball hasn't given you the latest flash. I've just been fired. Blacklisted, never to work in the publishing business again. What are you going to do about it? Well, first, I'm going to get myself a good stiff drink. Good, I'll join you. I'm sorry, but I won't have time. This is business, George. You see, the great man thinks he's going to blacklist me, too. But I know enough about Mr. Janeth to make him change his mind about both of us. So... How about the Van Barth? In, say, half an hour? Oh, but it's almost five, and I I promised my wife I... I I... think this is one time she'd forgive you, George. Okay, half an hour at the Van Barth. Call my home, will you, Miss Adams? Tell my wife I'll be home at six o'clock. Bartender, the lady and I will have two more stingers, and this time make them with green mint. Green mint? Yes, Mr. Janeth hates green, anything green, didn't you know? Who's Mr. Janeth? Never mind. Two drinks, doubles with green mint. Yes, sir. How are you feeling? Oh, fine, fine. <laughs> Good. I'm feeling fine, too. Oh, George, it's getting late. Uh, now, about that idea I had. So you want us to write his biography, huh? Janeth's biography. Who'd buy it? He'd buy it, Janeth. Just to make sure it would never be published. Well, you know, it's a very interesting idea. But it's not for me, honey. Now, what time is it? <laughs> a little after seven. <laughs> I, I said, what time is it? Well, if you want to quibble, five after seven. Holy smoke, the train! I missed the train! Excuse me, I got a phone home. Well, how's everything at home? She's gone. She went without me. How do you like that? I give up my job, jeopardize my whole career for her sake, and she won't even wait a couple of minutes. Bartender, where are those drinks? Here, with the green... Well, I'll shilly-shally, let's have them. Oh, oh, dear, all over me. Oh, here, here, use my handkerchief. Then I've got an idea. Well? Well, you see, Janeth, he loves time. He's in love with clocks. Well, I, I despise time, so let's send him a clock, a green clock. Oh, that's a lovely idea. I, uh, <coughs> oh, but who, who sells green clocks at this time of night? You just leave it to old Uncle George. You finish that drink there, hon, then leave it to good old Uncle George. Let's look for a 
another antique shop, George. It's a cinch they don't have any green clocks here. Hey, hey, wait a minute. That that uh, painting over there. Oh, George, it's horrible. A painting of a pair of hands. Never mind your opinions. I'll bet that's a Patterson. Yeah, you see, Flora Patterson. Well, if I painted that, I'd never sign my name to it. One of these days, this canvas will be famous. Storekeeper! I told you, mister, no green cloth. How much for the painting? Twelve dollars. Huh? Look, you want it? Give me ten dollars. Sold and save the wrapping. I'll put it under my arm. But I'm taking my clock trade elsewhere. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Good night, mister. Good night, lady. So you bought the painting. Huh? Who are you? Just a busybody peeking in store windows. (laughs) Isn't it a pity? The wrong people always have the money. Good night. You know, I think she's pixelated. (laughs) Come on, we'll go to Bert's place for a green clock. Where? You never heard of Bert's place as a saloon. Oh. Oh, very famous place. Bert's a collector. He collects anything from collar buttons to buggy whips. Why? Well... Pardon me, it's his way of advertising. He's got a standing guarantee to all customers. A free drink to anyone who can ask him for something he hasn't got. I'm all for a free drink. Me? I want a green clock. Come on, it's just around the corner. Oh, what a place! <laughs> I've never seen such a collection of junk in my life. Hey, George, old boy. George. <laughs> well, well, we are looking with you. President McKinley. Pauline, I want you to meet the 23rd President of the United States. The 25th, George. How, How do you do? It's a very great pleasure, man. Oh, thank you, President. I heard you were dead. He is also Colonel Jefferson Randolph of Randolph Farms, Georgia. How do you do, Colonel? We Randolphs, ma'am, will fight the Yankees till the last drop of bourbon's been shed. <laughs> also, Inspector Regan of the homicide detail. As an officer of the law, it's my duty to warn you that anything this fella says may be used against you. <laughs> be seeing you, George. <laughs> Who in the world? Radio. He's a radio actor. Every Wednesday, he's Inspector Regan. And Fridays, he's Colonel Randolph. And Sundays, he's President McKinley. <laughs> hey, Bert! Where's my green clock? I got it. I knew it. I knew I'd have a green clock yeah. somewhere. Thought you had me, didn't you, Mr. Stone? Here, how's this? A sundial? And a nice green, green ribbon from me dear old mother, Shillelagh, to tie around it. Well, is this a green clock or isn't it? <laughs> I tell you, the guy, the one I was... Oh, oh, brother. What happened? Hey, where are we? My apartment, you passed out. George, you've got to leave now, right away. Well, you were going to make some coffee. George, Earl Janeth's here. His car's downstairs. Janeth? Yes, he's on his way up. Now, please, hurry. Oh, Oh, and take this, too. Our green clock? No, I wouldn't hear of it. I want you to have it as a little memento. All right, just get out of here. Well... It's been a pleasure, Miss York. George, George, wait till you hear the elevator and then use the stairs. Yes, ma'am. Oh, here. Your painting. An original Patterson. Ten dollars. Don't worry, he won't see. I decided to come back tonight, Pauline. Well, I'll only stay a moment. I was wondering if you had a pleasant evening. Marvelous. Started at the Van Barth and just kept going. Was he with you? The fellow who ran down the stairs as I got out of the elevator? Yes. Yes, he was. Who is he? Oh, just a man. His, his name's 
Jefferson Randolph. What does he do? Nothing much, I'm afraid. Sort of a playboy. I'm getting a little tired of your friends. Now, that's a shame, isn't it? The army captain, the lifeguard last summer, the racetrack tout at Saratoga. How many others have there been? Shut up! You. You, of all people, talking about my friends. What about you and that Artway's secretary? And that stenographer? And the girl from publicity? You think they'd look at you twice if you weren't the great Janet? Stop it. Have you lived this long without knowing that everybody laughs at you behind your back? Stop it. You'd be pathetic if you weren't so disgusted. I said stop Why, it. you clammy, flabby, Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Steve, how can you be so calm? I, I told you I killed Pauline. Not 20 minutes ago. I killed Pauline. Why? I don't know. Forgive me, Steve. I had no right to come here to your home. I'll go. I'll go to the police. Don't be a fool. What about Janeth Publications? Do you want to fight or do you want to quit? Steve, if there's any chance at all of getting out of this, you... You know I'll take it. Of course there's a chance. We've been very discreet about Pauline. No one knows about it but you and I. Now tell me. Tell me what you did. I... I can't describe that. You've got to tell me, Earl. Thirty seconds before, I didn't intend anything like it. I just don't understand it. I struck her with some sort of sundial, heavy metal. It's still there. Didn't you wear a hat? Where is it? I must have left it there. I'll go to her apartment, Earl. I'll clean things up. Steve, I'm gratified... I always thought you wanted to step into my shoes with Janeth Publications. Not yet, Earl. Janeth Publications aren't through with you yet. Now stop worrying. With any luck, nobody's ever going to know you killed Pauline York. We'll return with the second act of The Big Clock in a few moments. And now, our Hollywood reporter, Libby Collins, with news about the stars. And one of the busiest stars in Hollywood, Mr. Keeley, is Joan Fontaine. I attended a studio showing of her latest picture, You Gotta Stay Happy, released by Universal International. That's the second picture made by Joan's own company, Rampart Productions. Yes. And you know, it's really a family affair, because Joan Fontaine's husband, William Dozier, is the producer. So, what with being business partner to her husband... And acting the leading role, Joan had plenty to do. She certainly proves she has a flair for light comedy, and you've got to stay happy. Teamed up with Jimmy Stewart, the laughs come thick and fast. Well, the picture lived up to its name with the whole cast. Everybody stayed happy to the very last scene. And even though Joan would be tired after a long day on the set, she'd leave her dressing room looking fresh and lovely as ever. I'm sure John Kennedy could tell you the reason why. Oh, that's easy, Libby. All Lux girls know what to do for a quick beauty pickup. Especially when there's a cake of that big, new, bath-sized Lux toilet soap handy. My, what a refreshing beauty bath it makes. That generous bath size gives more of the creamy Lux soap lather. Screen stars love the Lux soap perfume, too. A light, delicate fragrance that really lasts. Lux soap's perfume is a triumph of blending, Libby. The fragrance of rose jasmine, lily of the valley, and lilac are just a few of the ingredients. No wonder screen stars recommend the new satin-smooth bath cake. It's so luxurious. Women everywhere are thrilled with Lux Toilet Soap 
in the generous new bath size. If you haven't tried it, why not put it on your shopping list tomorrow? Here's our producer, Mr. William Keeley. Here's the second act of The Big Clock, starring Ray Milland as George and Maureen O'Sullivan as Helen. Earl Janeth made no mistake when he picked Steve Hagen as his second-in-command. Hagen's gone to Pauline's apartment. From her purse, he's removed a man's handkerchief and a check for $1,000. He set back the time on a broken clock, picked up Janeth's hat, and taken the sundial. Now, after a long talk with Janeth, he's telephoned George Stroud. But George isn't at home. George is in Wheeling, West Virginia. Don't you understand, Helen? I was detained. I took the first plane I could get. Oh, I was so angry when the train left without you. It was unforgivable, George. It was unforgivable you're leaving without me. Well, what was I supposed to do? Wait at the station till our golden wedding? That's exactly what Janeth wanted. Darling, I got news for you. I've hmm? quit. For good, forever, and for always, I quit. Oh, I don't believe it. We're unemployed and penniless. Oh, it's too good to be true. Blacklisted for life, never to work on a magazine again. Oh, George, how wonderful. <sighs> Why didn't you phone me? Oh, darling, I had 18 million things to do. You just can't clean up seven years in five minutes. Oh, I've been so miserable. Were you miserable, too? Miserable? Hmm. I was desolate. I walked the streets like a zombie. You uh, didn't meet any blonde fortune tellers on the way, did you? You're not serious. Yes, I am, George. I'm very serious. I can stand a lot, but that's one thing I just couldn't take. Well, darling, that's something you'll never have to take. You're the only blonde in my life. I'm a brunette. Well, you're the only brunette, too. Don't answer it. Well, hadn't I better? No one would call if it weren't important. Hello. George, Steve Hagen. George, we've got the story of the year. It's a natural for you. Haven't you heard, Steve? I quit. That's telling him, darling. But, George, this is important. The payoff man in an enormous war contract scandal. Find him and you'll get a bonus. Six months vacation. I'm on a permanent vacation right now, and you can tell Mr. Uh, wait Janet a minute, George. I'm... Wait a minute. I'll put him on. Don't want to talk to him. This is Janet, George. I behaved very badly yesterday. I apologize. Well, that's, that's very big of you, Mr. Janet. George, as servants of the public, it's our duty to find this man. The trail is still fresh. He was around town last night with a blonde. We know they were at the Van Barth in some place called Burt's. What? What place? Burt's place. You know who the girl is? No, and we don't care. We're only after the man. His name is Jefferson Randolph. Randolph? I'm not going to rest until I've exposed this scoundrel if I have to assign every man in our organization. Well, I, I'll grab the next plane, Mr. Janet. George, if you leave me now, I'll never speak to you again. Darling, I have to. Why? Why do you have to? Janeth says it's a war contract scandal. That's just a blind. He's trying to find out who's been playing around with this girl. I happen to know the man. Well? He's a victim of circumstance. I've got to go back. I've got to keep Janeth from finding him. It would wreck his life. His life? Well, what about our life? Helen, please. I've got to go back to New York. <laughs> Just call the airport, Earl. Stroud will be here any minute. Steve, do you think he can do it? Find Jefferson Randolph? Yes, he's a wizard at finding people. Pinning the murder on Randolph may be something else again. Oh, uh, about the sundial, Earl. There was a tag on the bottom, stolen from Bert's place, it said. So I brought it back to the saloon. Brought it back? No one saw it. Kept it under my coat. Earl, are you sure this Randolph fellow saw you last night? He couldn't help but see me. I was directly under a light. 
And if you're smart, Steve, you'll send my wife two dozen roses or something. She came back with me, but she's not at all happy about it. Of course, George, of course. Now about this Jefferson Randolph. A war contract scandal, huh? Yes, we know nothing about him. Only that he and a very pretty blonde were at the Van Barth last night and later at Burt's place. You can assign anybody you want to this case, spend all the money you think necessary. But we must get results, and quickly. Where did you get your information, Steve? Uh, a confidential source. Earl and I are pledged not to reveal it. Okay. I'll get the staff together, check back with you in an hour. Uh, George, remember, forget the blonde. All we want is Jefferson Randolph. Hello? Hello, operator? I'm ringing that number for you now, sir. Okay. Hello? Bert's place. Bert? Yeah. George Stroud. Oh, how are you, Mr. Stroud? Look, Bert, I can't go into details, but you haven't seen me all week, understand? And definitely I wasn't around there last night. Ah, <laughs> get it, Mr. Stroud. A little wavy trouble, huh? Well, something like that, Bert, but not, don't let me down. Don't you worry, Mr. Stroud. I never even heard of you. Thanks, Bert. Much obliged. Miss Adams? Yes, sir? What about that Butterfield number? It still doesn't answer, Mr. Stroud. Oh, there's a phone for the apartment house. Maybe they'd know if Miss York went out. I told you not to mention that name. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Stroud. Well, forget the apartment house. I want to speak to the party directly. I'll try again in a few minutes. Hey, George, George, we got something. Come in, Cordette. Spalding just phoned in, found a witness. Said he saw a couple of like hours near Bert's place at 10.30 last night. The man had a painting under his arm. A painting of a pair of hands. What about the man? Any description? Oh, awful vague, George. The witness was too busy staring at the blonde. Well, put what you got on the blackboard. Bert's place, 10.30. Oh, George. Oh, come in, Steve. Couldn't that be one of your famous irrelevant clues? What? The picture, the painting of the hands. Oh, yes. Yes, it might be at that. And if he had it under his arm, maybe he just bought it somewhere in the neighborhood. Well, I'll uh, sign a man to check. What's the matter with you? Put six men on it. Check every art store and antique shop in the neighborhood. This could be red hot. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Caught at... Get every available man in here right away. Whiteboard's starting to look like something, George. As of exactly 12.17, here's where we stand. Name, Jefferson Randolph, tall, medium build, black hair. Was wearing single-breasted gray suit, well-tailored, blue tie. Frequents the Van Barth and Burt's place, collects paintings... Character questionable. Mr. Stroud, Vincent's on the phone. They've located five Randolphs. No, I'll get it, George. Hello? Look, put Vincent on Kislav's phone. Kislav, assign a man to each one of those Randolphs. Routine check with form AA. Okay, okay, fine. That was Vince, George. Another break. That painting came from an antique store on 3rd Avenue, and the artist's name is Patterson. Well, sounds like our man may be a collector. Well, what do we do about it, George? Hadn't we better get on it? <laughs> What's the name of the chief critic on Artways? Oh, a fellow named Klaus Meyer. Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll send him over to see Patterson. Patterson? Patterson? Hey, of course, I've seen some of her paintings in your home. Look, why don't you interview Patterson? Well, I can't leave here. The way we're going, we'll have Randolph inside of three hours. Look, you better grab a bite to eat, Cordette. You may not have a chance later. Yeah, yeah thanks, George. I just tried the Butterfield number again, Mr. Stroud. Still no answer. Well, skip it. I'll try it myself later. Oh, uh, Mr. Klausmeyer's on the phone. He said if you're busy, you'll call Mr. Hagen. Hagen? No, no! Klaus Meyer, this is George Stroud. Have you seen Miss Patterson yet? I just this second left her. I think I've got something, Mr. Stroud. Well? The girl this Randolph was with, well, her name is Pauline York. She wants model for Stalways. Patterson recognized her. She was standing outside that antique shop last night when Randolph bought the painting. And the girl was with him. I'm going over to see Miss York right now. I'll call you back, Lacey. No, no, hey, wait a minute. Hello, hello. Miss Adams. Yes, sir? 
I'm going uptown. Find Cordette and tell him to take over. Who is it? Uh, this is Mr. Klausmeyer. I'm from Artways Magazine. I'd like to see Miss York, please. Hey, why? Why, Mr. Stroud. Hello, Klausmeyer. Looks like I got here first. Oh, well, yes, it does. Uh, you've seen Miss York, then? Yes, yes, I've seen Miss York. Got all the information we need. Now, let's get out of here. Are we going back to the office, Mr. Stroud? No. Well, well... What did Miss York tell you? Who's the man? Jefferson Randolph, manufactured from Pittsburgh. Klausmeyer, hop on a plane right away. Find out all you can about him. But Mr. Strat, uh, Pittsburgh? This is an order right from Mr. Janet. Oh, oh, yes, of course. Call me the minute you arrive. I'll wire a thousand bucks expenses. Incidentally, who have you spoken to since you saw Miss Patterson? Why, I phoned you right away. I, I haven't talked to a soul. Good. Now, there's a cab at the corner. Now, get to that airport. I don't even have a tooth. That's the spirit, Klausmeyer. Hey, Mac, uh, you the doorman here? Uh, yes, sir. Well, look, for ten bucks, would you happen to know a Mr. Janeth? Mr. Janeth, yes, sir. Did you see him around here last night? Um, not before midnight. I go off duty at 12, sir. Uh-huh. Well, tell me, does Miss York happen to have a maid? Well, sure, but you won't find her. She started a vacation last Monday. Oh. Well, where would you get a cab around here at, say, uh, oh, one o'clock in the morning? Uh, two blocks east. Oh, thank you, sir. Here's George now, Earl. He's been out on the case. Well, George, we're making progress, eh? Fine progress. In time, eight hours, and manpower, the efforts of 46 employees. In results, enough information about this man, his whimsicalities, his charming manners, his penchant for green mint stingers and modern paintings to write a biography. Just one thing, George. Where is this man? I don't know, Mr. Janeth. You don't know. But I've placed the blonde. Her name is Pauline York. How did you discover that? I just left her apartment. Did you talk to her? I couldn't very well on account of she was dead. Well, that doesn't seem to be much of a shocker to either of you. George, why do you think we've been conducting this frantic search? How'd you know she was dead? Uh, her maid discovered the body this morning. She telephoned Steve. Steve? Uh, yes. Uh, Miss York was a protege of Steve's, George. Well, why didn't she call the cops? Uh, Steve, ask her not to. We want to trap Randolph ourselves. Big feather in our caps. But what makes you so sure that Randolph killed her? Who else could it be? Well, how about Steve here? She was his protege. It's a very strange suggestion, George. But I telephoned Steve at his home last night. I was speaking with him at exactly 12.32. Within seven minutes of the time the murder took place. How do you know? Well, Miss York had a clock on the table. It was broken in the struggle. Oh, Oh, then you've been to her apartment. The maid reported it. What's the matter with you, George? Nothing. I I just can't understand why you're both so sure that Randolph killed her. Suppose an investigation proves him innocent. What investigation? Well, an inquiry around the apartment house. Witnesses who saw somebody else enter or leave. You have such witnesses? No, no, but I'll sure look for them. Unless you decide to let the matter drop. Aren't you going to great lengths to protect this Randolph? I'm just trying to keep an open mind. It almost seems as if you had some inside knowledge of this matter, George. Hello. Yes, Cordette, he's here. You have? 
Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, George, you can forget about your investigation. We have our man. He was seen entering this building not two minutes ago. Steve, I want emergency orders issued at once. Close the building and block all exits. Nobody has to leave unless identified. Identified? Identified by whom? Why, George, didn't you know? Oh, but how could you know? You just came in the building yourself. No, what? Your very efficient department has found the antique dealer who sold the painting to Randolph. They brought him in an hour ago. Take the dealer down to the lobby, Steve, immediately. down the lobby, George? Well, I, I think it's a waste of time, Cordant. Well, don't you want to meet him, the antique dealer? Spaulding and Dixon found him not a block away from Burt's place. Well, that's fine. That's great. But who says Randolph's in the building? Miss Patterson, the artist, claims she saw him step in the elevator. Ah, George, I certainly got the hand it to you. You'll have this thing solved. Why didn't at... you tell me Patterson was here? Well, how could I? You've been with Mr. Jonathan Hagen. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, it's far more important that I see her than play house in the lobby. Oh, uh, what about the fire escapes, the emergency exits? All guarded. Nobody leaves except through the lobby. Patterson in my office now? Yeah, with Miss Adams. Well, let me know how they're doing in the lobby. Yes, Miss Adams? Miss Patterson's still waiting, Mr. Stroud. Well, I, I'm on the phone. I'll be with her in a minute. Hello? Superior Cab Company? Look, I'm trying to locate one of your cab drivers, Casimir Kowalski. Oh? No phone. Well, how about his address? 16 East 31st Street? Thanks. Send her in, Miss Adams. This way, Miss Patterson. Oh, you! You're Mr. Stroud? Oh, it's very amusing, really. <laughs> Pardon me while I laugh. Miss <laughs> uh, Adams, you better go down the hall and help Fraser on the blackboard. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I'm pleased that somebody likes my work. I've admired your work for years. Well, what am I supposed to do now? That codfish, Mr. Klaus... Uh, Klaus Meyer. Uh, yes. Well, he said I'd get $100 if I'd make a sketch of the man who bought my painting last night. And then somebody else called and said he'd give me another 50 if I came down here and identified him. Plus the cab fare. That's one hundred and fifty-one fifty-five plus a ten-cent tip. Well, I'll give you a cash voucher right now. Shall I start the sketch? Uh, that won't be necessary. Oh, Mr. Stroud, I've few enough collectors of my paintings without sending one to jail. Well, this'll take some explaining, believe me, but if you... <laughs> Nonsense! What did you do? Oh, never mind. With all that hue and cry downstairs, it must have been something terribly lurid. But I don't mind. I can't wait till I tell the children. Children? Oh, yes. Here. Here's their photograph. Ugly little cherubs, aren't they? All these yours? More or less. <laughs> now, uh, that one's Ralph's, my first husband. Drank himself to death. And these three are Fredericks. Lost at sea. And these two are Willies, whom I refuse to discuss. And the twins here are Mike's. Your present husband? Well, he would be if I could find the rat. <laughs> oh! Oh, my goodness, this voucher. It says $500. I said I was an admirer of yours. Oh. By the way, what did you do with my painting? Well, it's quite safe, Miss Patterson. I took it home. Now, look, uh, about the sketch. Does it have to look like me? Uh, you know, I've been attracted lately more and more to surrealism, Mr. Stroud. Uh, let me see now. An electric fan. Exactly. 
The man I saw last night was an electric fan. Paper, please. Pencil, pencil. What's going on for Miss Adams? My, that's quite a blackboard you have there, John. Oh, Helen, I knew you couldn't stay away. Not after what I found in our bedroom. Find in our bedroom? Yes, that terrible painting. Oh, darling, look, Liz, I, I, I can explain everything. Look, all I want to know is Look, what... let's go into my office. Oh, no, 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 I can't. She's in there, Miss Patterson. Who? Who's in there? Oh, never mind. Helen, if you'd only hey, give me... Yes, Tony? I just got the bartender at the Van Barth. Oh, hello, Mr. Stroud. He says Randolph spilled a drink on the blonde. Fine, fine. Put it on the blackboard. And that she mopped it up with his handkerchief. She put the handkerchief in her purse. George, what if it has a laundry mark on it? What goes the laundry mark without the handkerchief? Huh? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll put it on the blackboard. Oh, you see what I mean, Helen? I'm going nuts. Take your hands off me, Jefferson Randolph. What? Helen, I've got to talk to I you. I bet you do. All about wrecking an innocent man's life. Listen to me, please. I'll tell you the whole story. But why didn't you go to the police when you found she was dead? And spend the next 90 years in jail? Janet can rig up a dozen alibis. Aiken had sell his soul to him. So would a dozen others. Me? All I got is myself. Well, what about the taxi driver? Or did you just invent him? Invent a guy named Casimir Kowalski? You could invent anything. Miserable. Desolate, walked the streets like a zombie. And all the time, there you were Darling, with that... Darling, look. Listen to me. Hmm? I know where Kowalski lives. Here's the address. But I can't get out of the building. Now, unless Kowalski comes here and identifies Janet, that antique dealer down in the lobby is going to identify me. George? Yeah, Tony. Mr. Janet just called, watch in his office right away. Okay. Oh, if I ever get out of this jam, I'm going right back to West Virginia. Oh, if I could only believe that. I'll cover church socials, write obituaries, set type anything. That'd be wonderful. But you won't. Well, I... I better see Janet. I guess I'll be back. Who knows? There's no doubt about it, George. That man Jefferson Randolph is one of my own employees. Moreover, he's in this building this very minute. I want him smoked out, George. Use the guards. Mobilize everyone. Get that antique dealer and start a floor-by-floor -floor search of the entire building. Yes, sir. I'll put O'Brien on it. He's your personal bodyguard. He ought to be... Not O'Brien, George. You and the antique dealer. Do you understand me? Yes, Mr. Janeth. I understand. We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. In a few moments, we'll bring you Act Three of The Big Clock. Tonight's guest, Miss Carmen Rigo, must have one of the most exacting jobs in Hollywood. She's hairstyle supervisor at Universal International. A very resourceful person, Mr. Rigo. Well, each picture presents a new problem, Mr. Keeley. And even a man knows that being a hairstylist calls for ingenuity and, uh, well, patience, doesn't it? More than that. Creating coiffures for the world's most glamorous women is a challenge. Take the Countess of Monte Cristo, for instance. Sonia Henney's latest picture, in which she proves again she's queen of the ice. Miss Henney's new leading man, Michael Kirby, adds to the thrill, too. He's Canada's former figure skating champion. 
to see them streaking over the ice together and spinning like mad is sheer delight. So you can guess why Miss Henny's hairdo was a problem. It had to stay in place. And how did you solve the problem? For the Countess of Monte Cristo, we clipped it fairly short and then brushed it into soft, flat curls. If I do say so, she looked adorable. Perhaps, Miss Dorigo, you'd like to tell the ladies in our audience what you think about hairstyles in general. My feeling is that short hair will be the fashion for at least three more years. As a suggestion for evening wear, those pin-on pieces are wonderfully effective with the current period fashions. But I know Mr. Kennedy will bear me out when I say, no matter how fetching the coiffure, the effect is lost unless it frames a lovely complexion. That's right. So, uh, it must be a great satisfaction to you, Mr. Rigo, to have all those lovely Lux girls to work on. I should say so. Sonia Henney tells me she wouldn't think of neglecting her daily Lux soap facials. Says they give her skin just the gentle, protecting care it needs. Thank you, Miss Carmen Dorigo, for reminding women everywhere of a simple complexion care that really works. A care that nine out of ten famous stars depend on. There's no doubt that Lux soap facials make skin lovelier. Skin specialists have proved it. In actually three out of four cases, complexions became softer and smoother in a short time. Why not try Lux toilet soap tomorrow? This fine white soap with a delicate fragrance is Hollywood's own beauty care. Now, here's our producer, Mr. William Keeley. The curtain rises for Act Three of The Big Clock, starring Ray Milland as George and Maureen O'Sullivan as Helen. It's a few minutes later, in a private elevator that has just started up from the milling lobby of the Janet Building, George Stroud faces a terrified antique dealer. But it is you. You are the man they are looking for. You bought that painting last night in my shop. Look, you... look wait a minute. You've got to keep calm now. Take it easy. They said you were an official here. That you... Oh, you haven't a thing to worry about. It's just that someone was murdered, that's all. Murdered? Yeah, they think I did it. At least they're trying awfully hard to pin it on me. Murdered? What are you going to do to me? Well, what would you do in a spot like I'm in? You'd stall for time. Time to get proof that you're innocent, even if it means... <coughs> having to suck a nice little guy like you smacking the button. I'm sorry, pal, but that's the only way out. Where's that artist? Where is she, Steve? She'll be right in now. She's got that sketch of Randolph about finished. Uh, did O'Brien get back? What about the driver? Did he find the cab driver? O'Brien's back. It cost you $5,000 with the cab drivers leaving town. Goodness, what an artist. Now, which one of you is Mr. Janet? Uh, just sit down. Uh, give me that sketch. I think I've captured his mood rather successfully, don't you think? Well, here, look. And just what is this supposed to be? Get her out of here, Steve. The woman's an idiot. Mr. Hagen, Mr. Hagen. Yes, what is it, Tony? The antique dealer. Well, what's he doing here? He says Randolph jumped him in the elevator. I fought. I struggled. No use. He was enormous. But you got to look at him. Such a face I will never forget. And that wild glare in his eyes. Warn everyone, Steve. Authorize them to shoot if necessary. Tell O'Brien, shoot to kill. And Tony, you get Stroud in here. That's just it, Mr. Janus. Stroud's disappeared. Maybe Randolph slugged him, too. Oh, the bartender is here from the Van Barth. Hold him in the reception room under guard. And find George Stroud. Helen. Helen, in here. What in the world? Where have you been? I've been going crazy. What are you doing in that room closet? Is the corridor clear? Well, at the moment, yes. But Look, they're all you... looking for me. That antique dealer, he saw me. I had to knock him out. Where did you go? Casimir Kowalski, the taxi driver. I went to his house. And? Gone. 
The neighbor said he came into a sudden legacy. Oh, sure, sure. A sudden legacy from old Grandpa oh. Janet. That's all I needed. Well, I'm going to call the police. And turn me in? Oh, it's better than having you shot. The guards are running around here with guns in their hands, and they've been ordered shoot to kill. Oh, oh come on. Hagen's office is empty. We'll go in there. Oh, why did you ever have to do anything with that woman? I told you I didn't have anything to do with her. There must be some way out of this mess. Oh, give me a cigarette. Well, I don't have any. Isn't that a cigarette box? Take one of Hagen's. Maybe I should go to Janet's. Try to make some sort of a deal with him. Here. Here's a cigarette. What's that? It's a handkerchief. What's it doing in a cigarette box? Let me see that. Well, well. What do you mean, well, well? It's my handkerchief, the one in Pauline's purse. There you go again, Pauline. How did Hagen get it? He claimed he was never up there. Why couldn't we pin this job on Hagen? We'll put him in such a hole, he'll have to implicate Janet. Well, who are you phoning? Bert's place, a friend of mine. He's always in Bert's place this time of day. I'll... Hello? Oh, this is George Stroud. Let me speak to the president. The president? Yes, President McKinley. Now, look here, George. I really... Well, what's that? Interrupt his phone. Yes? This is Hagen. Cordette just saw you go into my office. Are you looking for me? Uh, yes, yes, Steve. Uh, my wife is here, and I didn't want uh, well, her Mr. To... Jenner's in your office, and we want to see you at once. Is that clear, George? Well, I... I'll be right there. Helen. Yes? This guy at Bert's place. When he comes to the phone, tell him to get up here as fast as he can. He's a radio actor, a friend of mine. Where will you be? Not in my office. Tell Hagen you don't know where I went. Now, there's a room on the second floor, the place where the works are for the big clock. I'll hide there and wait. Call me when McKinley gets here. Extension 381. Stroud's disappeared again, Earl. His wife claims he left my office to come here. I don't get it. 250 people, 12 hours and 43 minutes, and we still haven't found Randolph. Right here, Steve, in our own building. Earl. Earl, look. What? The clock on the wall. It stopped. Mr. Hagen! in here. Well, why shouldn't it stop? What's the matter with that? But you issued orders never to stop the clock for anything. Why shouldn't it stop for once? It's a mechanical thing, isn't it? It can go wrong, can't it? It started again, see? Uh, the second hand's moving. Yes, uh, that's strange that it should start again. O'Brien. Yes, Mr. Janet? Go down to the second floor, O'Brien. See if anybody's in the clock room. Who's in there? I said, who's it? No. No. Hello? George? Did you get the president? Yes, yes, he's here now. But George, are you all right? Oh, I'm fine. Two shots, but he missed. What? Look, there's a conference room on the 16th floor. I'll get up there as soon as I can. George, what happened? Never mind. Hello, Prez. I came right over, George, as soon as I could. Yeah, thanks. Look, we've got to work fast before that thug gets out of the elevator. Who? What thug? O'Brien, Janet's bodyguard. He'll be coming up after me. I just shoved a letter opener inside the elevator door. It broke the circuit. Now, he's stuck somewhere between floors, but it won't be forever. What can I do, George? Well, you stay here with me. Helen, find Janet. Janet and Steve Hagen. Yes? Tell them to come in here right away. Tell them I've nailed our man. This man, George? Is this the one? This is Jefferson Randolph? Uh, no, no. Uh, this is Inspector Regan of the Homicide Detail. Mr. Earl Janeth, Mr. Steve Hagen. Yeah, how do you do? But, George, you said that you had the man. Inspector, would you mind stepping outside for a moment? I give you my solemn word, nothing irregular will occur. 
that. Hagen fellow, George. I've seen him before somewhere. Look, he's editor-in-chief here. Now stay in the corridor, Mac, like I call you, will you? Right. And Inspector George, I thought I told you to keep away from the police. Yes, until we had the murderer. Well, I'm afraid this is going to be a shock. There's our man, Mr. Janeth, Steve Hagen. What? Steve? George, this is a very serious charge. I wouldn't be making it if I didn't have the evidence. Evidence? Why, the witnesses have all seen me. The antique dealer, the bartender, Miss Patterson. Why, they talk to me. Oh, I'm not saying you're Jefferson Randolph, Steve. But I am saying you murdered Pauline York. Why? Why would I kill her? Blackmail. He's been giving her money by check, Mr. Janeth. The bank will verify that. Absurd. Is it? Cigarette? Not now. Go ahead, Steve. Open the box. You need a smoke. Thank you, no. You're afraid to open the box. Why? Because this handkerchief was in there. Isn't that so, Mr. Hagen? How about it, Steve? The handkerchief that Miss York got from Randolph at the Van Barth. Here. Notice the green stains. And where would Steve get this handkerchief, Mr. Janet, except from the purse in Miss York's apartment? Did it occur to you, George, that the maid might have brought it to me? The maid's been away on her vacation, Steve. Gone since last Monday, and that's not all. There's a cab driver who took you from Pauline's apartment. I don't seem to see him around, that cab driver. Because he was bribed to go away. But I've got the address he took from you. Got it by phone from the cab company's files. Here it is, Mr. Janet. 323 Sutton Place. That's Steve's address. There's your evidence, and it'll stand up in court. George, you've had a brainstorm. Anybody could have taken a cab to my address or planted that handkerchief in my cigarette box. As for the maid, I... I think I can produce her if necessary. Earl saw her this morning. Didn't you, Earl? Uh, uh, yes, yes, of course I did. Well, let's see what they say about it at headquarters. Helen, would you ask Inspector Regan to step in? I'm sorry to have had to do this, Steve. Come in, Inspector. Yeah, well, Mr. Stroud. There he is, Inspector. Hagen. Police Inspector, eh? What sort of a gag is this? I've seen this man, Earl, half a dozen times in Bert's place. A broken-down radio actor. George, I'm beginning to get an idea. Maybe some of the witnesses should get a look at you. Well, haven't they? No, only that crackpot, Miss Patterson. As a matter of fact, George hasn't seen one of the others. Only the antique dealer. Just before he was slugged. Hey, just a minute, Hagen. Bert's place, huh, Hagen? Did you see me there last night, late last night, when you sneaked that sundial back into Bert's collection? Sundial? Yes, he didn't think anybody saw it. He had it under his coat. The murder weapon. And a witness who saw him try to get rid of it. Well, I guess that just about wraps it up, Mr. Janeth. Now suppose we phone for a real cop. George, in a minute, in a minute. Well, now? Uh... Steve, I, uh... I know how you feel about me, Steve. You're the most loyal employee I've ever had. I'm not going to let you down, Steve. I'll put every resource we have at your disposal. We'll fight this through for you, no matter how long it takes or how much it costs. You're not going to be alone, Steve. Every bit of influence I... Hagen. That you, Cornette? What is it? Oh, George. Well, we've searched every office now, except Steve's and Mr. Janus. No sign of anyone. The search is off, Cornette. Send everyone home. Oh, the Jefferson Randolph. Who is he? We are not interested. Just do what you're told. Uh, yes, Mr. Hagen. But I'm not going to jail, Earl. You insufferable egomaniac. You thought you inspired such adulation that I'd do anything for you. George, Janeth killed Pauline. You'll swear to that in court? Of course I will. I can prove that he... Ah! Stay there, all of you. I'll kill anyone else that tries to come after me. George, George, no, you heard what he said. Janeth, don't be a fool. Janeth! (laughs) 
George. George, are you all right? Sure. What about Janeth? Janeth is dead, Mac. Cordette, keep him outside, please. All of them. I'll tell you later. Call the police, Mac, will you? Where is he? Mr. Janeth. Well, I chased him down to the next floor. He went for the elevator. The elevator door was open a few inches. I told you how I jammed that letter opener to break the circuit. Well, Janeth must have thought the elevator was there. He pushed the door open, and that's that. What are you talking about? That's George Stroud. I know, but that other man. Jefferson Randolph? No, he's my fourth husband, Mike Darling. No, no, no. Well, darling. Huh? I guess you'd better call the police. President McKinley is all tied up. <laughs> And that was Ray Milland and Maureen O'Sullivan in The Big Clock. Wonderful. Just time to find out the identity of our Hollywood legend, then. Were you ever a member of the 8th Air Force during World War II? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart? Yes, of course, it was that distinctive voice that gave it away, right? It was Shelley's boyfriend, James Stewart. The moment his lips moved, we knew who it was. Still, wonderful to welcome him to the show again, though. And if you want to see him in a great noir, then do check out Call Northside 777, one of my all-time favorites. Well, that's it from me for this week, then. Thank you for joining me. Remember that if you want more of this show, there are over 150 editions now available at Patreon, along with access to my classic movie library, all 11 complete series of The Secret History of Hollywood, ebooks, movie commentaries, access to both days of the film festival later in November, and much, much more. Just go to patreon.com slash attaboysecrets or follow the link in the show notes of this episode and I will see you there. Take the best care of yourselves. Keep an eye out for the film festival link coming here very soon. And until we speak again, be well and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.com attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews and ebooks. and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.